Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. So today I'm delighted to be joined by Dolores, Dolores Sullivan. Uh, looking forward to our conversation, Dolores. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Um, so Dolores is a, a birth mum and she's also a therapist. And we spoke uh, about a month or so ago and something... Uh, Towards the end of our conversation, we got to something really juicy, I think, which is um, the uh, being being at peace with the lack of peace. Mm-hmm. Being at peace with the lack of peace, mm-hmm. and um, I, I thought that would be a great place to kick off. So, did, did I say that? Did you say that? Do you remember? Is a I, I never know. I'm thinking that maybe you said it out of something I said. Yeah. And we said it together, sort of. Yeah. yeah. Um, because this was a big, this is a big transformation in, in your life. You you talked about yes. how um you you felt that uh it, it, at one point you felt that it was a life sentence to 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 feel bad about um placing your your son, right? Yes, I would say it was an imposed license yeah. because it took me a long time to realize that I didn't have to live it like a life sentence uh, because part of that whole scenario of guilt and shame kept me sort of locked up like as in a sentence. Yeah. Uh, so as I pulled out of that and did a lot of my own work, um, I was able to realize that I had the keys to let myself out of the prison. Yeah. Yeah. I love that metaphor. Um, uh, And to continue the metaphor, what do you think the prison was made of? I think it was a combination of just issues that got me into the pregnancy and relinquishment uh, surrounding my own family of origin, which was there was some trauma there. There was some a lot of good, too, but there was trauma. And then that poured into the shaming and restricting experience of being in the maternity home. So the institutional shaming, the societal shaming, the religious shaming, the familial shaming, you know, sort of coalesced around the trauma. And yeah. then from that, um, it just sort of put me in a box of you can't get out of here. This is this is you. This is how your life is going to be narrated. Um, although I wouldn't use that word at the time, but it was like something that I was never going to get past. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever come across a, 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 a guy called uh, David Hawkins? So he's, one of his big works was called power versus force no i guess i'm not familiar with him yeah so he he was uh he was a therapist he was uh i think he was a preacher as well of some of some sorts a religious mm-hmm. guy of some sorts um he's unfortunately he's not long, no longer with us but he he used um he came up with a scale of a scale of human consciousness mm-hmm. that that goes from zero to to a thousand uh, and um, I don't know why it really didn't take off because it came up within the seventies, and it, it, it zero is 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 dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, unconditional love, I think, is three hundred and fifty. Mm. Uh, that uh, 
we were talking you were commenting on my dog um uh, pillows before we started recording he, he even calibrated the, the 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 level of consciousness of a dog's wagging tail and I, I can't remember what it was, but let's say it was 250 or something like that. But so Z zero is dead. Um, and uh, but the, the next one up from zero is shame at mm -hmm. 20. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, so I think Angus maybe 50, something like mm. that. Pride is 180. And then beyond 200, we get kind of get life affirming. Mm -hmm. life affirming levels of, of consciousness but for me it the fact that 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 shame is down there right at the bottom mm -hmm. of, uh, at, at all, almost death and we think about uh, unfortunately we think about people within the um, adoption constellation that have committed suicide right so zero mm -hmm. is dead shame is 20 shame is kind of as you say, all encompassing, really, and coalescing, mm -hmm. and it uh, and this this book, this power versus force book, I mentioned it quite often on the podcast. So sorry, listeners, if you've heard this before, but l looking at that level of of, of consciousness is a, a a great way for uh, to, to to see a a a plan or a, a roadmap or a ladder. Mm -hmm. um which is it starts with that um freedom so can you remind me when when uh this shame at that at the time that you placed your son this was quite it was this was a while ago would could you tell us when was it 60s 50s um, well it was in 68. Uh, I relinquished him two days before my 17th birthday on uh, in 1968. Yeah. Uh, but I would say the shame started way before that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in my own sense of being a young woman that was interested in sex and, and the experience, healthy experience of sex and having it not be okay and trying to submerge that. And then added the layer of getting pregnant, which as we've all talked about is, was so unforgivable. And then the shaming experience that starts so early, whether it's going to the doctor and how they look at you and talk to you. And then on into my going to a different school and, you know, it just goes on and on. Yeah. Um, so it, it was so embedded. The shame was so embedded in layer by layer by layer. Yeah, and, um, and clearly, it, so I was uh, uh, I, I was placed for adoption uh, in '67, so mm -hmm. I have some idea of of the society mm -hmm. norms yes. there. But um, uh, the the they obviously they've come, shifted a, a long way since. Oh yes, since then, since then, um, like somebody. I, I heard the other day that in the UK, only 1% of mm -hmm. the adoptions that we have yes. right now are um, voluntary adoptions. And yes, yes. 99% of them are state-initiated. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a court, it's, it's, a, it's a judge or a series of judges um, 
we've moved so far from those days and it, it and that's why you know when i read read a few birth mothers biographies and um they 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 go into great depths of of capturing that 60s shame mm-hmm. stuff especially mm-hmm. the as you say in the in the in the doctor's uh, surgeries and in the uh, the mother and baby's homes they just went mm-hmm. it, 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 it you were kind of drenched in shame it seemed to me it, well that was a form of uh discipline so to speak i mean it was a way to keep us all in control you know yeah and, and like everything had a shame-based theme to it i'm sure they wouldn't have used the language so much except maybe in some of the religious services but but it it was always there, whether it was a look or a frown or a sigh or, you know, um, well, you got yourself in this situation. That kind of language, you know, helped really keep it, keep us all in control. Yeah. Um, and that and and they were terrified of us being out of control because they saw us as out of control people already when we entered because we'd broken all the rules, you know. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, was it a religious home that you were in? Well, I was in a Salvation Army home, the White Shield Salvation Army, but they had a religious theme to it for yeah. sure. And we had to go, we had to pray before and after each meal. And we also had to go to church on Sunday and again on Wednesday night and we weren't allowed to do anything that was considered much fun not that there was a lot of fun in the maternity home but on Sunday that was a sacred day that you were supposed to just rest and be prayerful so to speak Um, and so it 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 certainly had the religious themes and all that and and did did they did they put a a, a, a a religious theme to the shame? Did they say, did they talk about this being against God and stuff like that? Yes, they would, in the prayers we had, they would talk about, please ask God to help you, forgive you for what you've done. And your one way to atone it is to give up your child. I mean, that was a theme within the prayer theme. And yeah. then that, remember, they had a woman come and talk about how she'd had this awful life and had used a lot of drugs and everything, which really was quite counter to the rest of us in there. We were all kind of pretty innocent kind of teenagers. Uh, so I remember we were just shocked by it, but then they kind of finished that sermon with, we were just like her, you know, um, and we were going to go the wrong way. I think she'd been in jail or something. And so it was all to so- somehow control us, you know. Yeah. And yeah. It was it was pervasive, you know. It, yeah, it was laid on really, really, really thick. Really thick. Yes. Yeah, yes. really thick. Yeah. And um, the because the 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 religious the, the the church was playing both sides, wasn't it? I think it was. Yes. It yes. was it was taking it was uh, shaming the um, shaming the kids shaming the kid shaming the birth mothers. Um, mm-hmm. But it was uh, into uh, relinquishment, but it, it was also uh, it, it was doing managing the transaction, wasn't it? It was taking it was taking money off off the couple's 
in the congregation that couldn't have their own kids or wanted. Yeah. yeah. So, it, 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 I, but it, money was being changed hands even within the church. It was go, this was all going yes. to church funds yeah. to do it. Yeah. This this well, is it's very compelling to be shamed to relinquish. It yeah. worked, right? You know, oh, gee, I better. I'm not going to be a good mother. You know, I'm not. I'm not good for this child. Uh, so, gee, I better give them up. You know. Um, yeah. And it, so it was very beneficial to them because they had a financial transaction that they could fulfill. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's different here in the UK because money doesn't change hands for adoption in the UK. Okay. okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Adoptive parents will pay some, may pay some court fees um, or mm -hmm. a, 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 a small amount of, of money. So, like three figures, perhaps, not. Mm -hmm. So uh, even though the church will, I'm sure, laid on loads of guilt, mm -hmm. um, it it wasn't it, it wasn't getting money. They weren't getting no. money for, for transaction. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. know whether they might have been saying a donation on the side. Do you know what I mean? They might have been yes, doing some yes. kind of stealth stuff. Might have, but um, yeah, yeah I, I I do remember being in. Been to Rome a few times in my life. I love love Rome, but we went once. We went to St Peter's, the the, the church, and um, uh, our friends wanted to go in, so we went into the to, to the Vatican, and mm -hmm. I saw some people queuing up to. I, I, first, I, I saw this huge, I saw this huge church and this fantastic ceiling, and all. We didn't go to the Sistine Chapel or anything, but I just thought this has come from collections from people mm -hmm. that, that's what's funded it and yes probably adoption stuff funds as that's what has been kicked up like the mafia do that yeah the mafia have to everybody has to kick up you yeah. know yeah. To, to the main man so everything's so anyway we won't get into that so um you you, you talked about um a, 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 a jail and i guess in, in one word, the jail is shame, right? Well, the, but the institution felt like a jail. The institution. Place we were in. Yeah, yeah, there were all these rules, you know, you couldn't watch TV except for a certain hour. You couldn't go. You had to be a bed at a certain time, up a certain. You could only have visitors a certain time. You know, there was just such rigid rules around it and, and just strange rules, like you were never allowed to nap. And I always thought, and I was so anemic. I was severely anemic and I had an abscess too. And I was so tired. But if you were caught napping, you were punished by removing your privileges of going somewhere on Sunday or having a visitor or being able to watch the movie that night, you know? So um, it was all to kind of control, you know, I always say to control our sexuality and our fecundity. You know, it was a way to manage all of us, um, yeah. and and it was effective in that in that sense. And I I worked really hard and quite creatively, by the way, to work around it. Yeah. And I'm not sure where that came out of me. There was some part. It was like I was on two tracks. I had the shame and awful person that I was experiencing. That I was so bad. And then this other part that oh, well, I'm going to take advantage of this situation and figure out how to live around it. And I actually did manage my own little <laughs> ways yeah. of not being caught in it, yeah. you know. 
I don't know where that came from. I was so young, but um, I, I'm glad it did. It's your cheeky spirit, you know. I can see yeah. it. Cheeky grin right now. Well, I had, I always had a sunny personality and a deep resilience. So I think when I came to this experience, I utilized that the best way I could be. Um, and I offered to do things like be the person that greeted all the new girls and gave them the tour. And I talked them into letting me have a room because most of us were in large rooms. And I talked them into letting me have a, actually was a closet with a window to have as my room. And then I talked them into let me have a bed from the basement. And, you know, I was being very creative. And then my whole walls were all covered with fashion models out of magazines, which people just thought I'd lost. What are you doing that for? You're like in a journey home, you're going to have a baby. Why you got fashion models? But see, I had to dream. I needed to dream because to not dream was to die in my soul somehow in there. So I had this little world in that closet. Um, And you became a model, didn't you? Yes, and I later became a model was in the fashion business 15 years, you know. So I had to figure out how to survive there. They had a little tiny library. I read every book. I didn't even care about the subject. I just started reading because I thought, well, I'm here for 120 days. I better just make the best of it, you know. Um, so I I learned to be really creative and um I think if you don't mind me telling this, um, the thing I'm most proud of is they had a rule that you could never sew on Sunday afternoon. It was like a sin. And the way they enforced it is they took the controls to the sewing machine and they locked them in a cabinet. And so I knew where the cabinet was. And I knew that if I went down and talked to the woman at the front desk, about her children that were in the photo in the background, she would lean over and leave the door open and I could get the second control to the machines. So I just slipped them in my pocket. And then on Sunday, when everybody was napping, I'd tiptoe down the hall and I'd sew beautiful clothes for when I got out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but that was my survival. Do you understand? It was like, boy, this is bad, but I'm going to figure out a way to get out of here, you know? Yeah. And then I put it back before they, they never figured it out. I discreetly put it back in the lock cabinet. No one ever caught me. They never caught me doing it, but it was like my escape, you know, that I could sew and make clothes for myself because someone donated fabric all the time, just donated. So I just go in and pick through it. And yeah. Make my own clothes, you know, without a pattern. <laughs> Fantastic. Good on you. Um, uh, so, so your uh, your your son was marinate part in 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 the in the womb. He was kind of marinated with some sunny disposition uh, and and a bit of shame as well. Then was he? I mean, oh yes, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. My heartache has always been that his life did not fare as well as mine did after relinquishment. And I couldn't have seen that at the time. Um, I thought that, you know, that I was doing the best thing. The only, well, actually, it was the only thing. <laughs> I didn't really have any other choice. Um, and I had thought he was going to go to a 
high-end, high-income family that would send him to the elite schools and he'd lived this life of polish. Um, and when I later found out 28 years later that wasn't the case, then I really had tremendous guilt and shame um, about the fact that he his life did not fare as well as mine uh, because my intent was for both of us to thrive. That was really, I remember being consciously thinking, hmm, what is the best thing to do here? I'm not done with high school, you know, and he needs a good home. I don't have any money. I don't want to be on welfare. You know, I was really trying to figure out the best option. And and they sold me such a great story about where he was going. And, oh, it was just going to be fabulous, you know. And it wasn't any of those things. It was not at all that. Um, so I had a certain comfort for 28 years that, well, at least he got a really good life. And, you know, the people really were mature. And they sent him to good school. You know, I had all this fantasy. And it was just heartbreaking when I realized that none of that was true. Yeah. You know. So what, what, um, we talked earlier on about uh, peace with the lack of peace. Mm -hmm. um, do you still feel that way too? You, you, they've obviously very coercive uh, propaganda. They've misled you. You mm -hmm. found out that, that it's all been a pack of lies. Mm -hmm. And then the, 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 the shame comes back at you this time with mm -hmm. like a vengeance, like, it, it's, yeah. on it's on steroids now. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, so what, what, what was the, what was the, how's the journey been since then? Because that's like 20, 30 years ago. I'm 56, I'm 56. Your son. 72. Was, I'm 72. I'm not going to, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. No, I thought I, you I didn't ask that. that. I was, I was going to work it out on your, on your son's. Oh, my son. Well, see, we've been in reunion since 95. So I found him in 95. I found him. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. You were going to ask me something. I was going to ask you. So what? You, you've got this, um, you found out the truth. Um, mm -hmm. that you've been misled. The uh, turbocharged shames come right back at you because you've realized you've been sold a, sold a, a duff mm -hmm. story. Um, what what happened next? What what was the next opening? I guess finding him was it? Yes, I spent fourteen years looking for him, and then I found him um, in September of ninety five. So I prior up right up to the minute I and actually even when I first met him, I thought oh, he's doing pretty good, you know. But as we got farther in reunion, I realized how troubled he was. And as the story unfolded about his life, then I realized, oh boy, this is really bad. Um, and I think that guilt really, really, I, I, it was overwhelming. I could not manage it because then I felt that sense of agency that yeah, 16 or not, no lawyer, no parent, no advice, nothing. I still made a decision to relinquish him. Um, even though I had good intentions uh, and it set his life on a trajectory that was not good. Um, and so that 
just hit me really hard. And I really dysfunctioned for a good four or five years after finding him. So that was that peace and not peace. Peaceful, I found him, not at peace because the truth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was really hard on both of us, really hard. Yeah. But something about your resi resilience got you through. Yes. Well, and I thought, okay, I'm going to bring him back into my family. This is my current one. And I had a nice husband and other children. And we're just going to envelop him with love. And, oh, it's just going to be great. I bought him a new Jeep. You know, I was just doing all this stuff to make up for it. Uh, but he was too troubled. He, in fact, the more he realized what he lost, the more mad he became. It was really hard for him. And it wasn't because I was the birth mother he had imagined. They told him, that actually told him that I was on drugs and I'd had a terrible life. I was a street person. It, it was that I wasn't that person. And then he'd lost all this life with me. Um, and it really hit him in deep rage. He was just full of rage about it. And I took the rage because I was so ashamed and and so culpable for having the decision. Um, and so I wrestled for years with my own sense of responsibility about that and tried to fix it and fix it and fix it, you know. Um, so now I see it completely different. But there then for many years, it was just really painful. Yeah. Because it was lies all around. He, he, he'd been told a, he'd been told a bunch of lies too. Yeah, totally, totally told a bunch of lies. Yeah, um, and and really saw the good life I had lived um, that he didn't get. Yeah, and and we both regressed. You know, he went back to sort of emotionally age three or four, and I went back to fifteen or sixteen. You know, and so we really that's where. It was so hard until I was able to really get a lot of support by a birth mom therapist, actually, who helped me out of it. Uh, but it took a long time, yeah. a long time. So what were the, what were the things that started to uh, click for you uh, over that long journey back to I think several things, really good on therapy. I had lots of good therapy. I had people that loved me a lot, um, that really supported me. And at that time, he's he's deceased now, but my husband at that time was a lovely man. He really stepped in to be uh, my son's father, so to speak, um, stepfather. And, and we really... You know, he he loved me so deeply. Now, I wouldn't say that I loved myself too much during that time. I was really mad at myself for what had happened. Um, but I had enough people around me that loved me. Um, and then, of course, meeting other birth moms and going to conferences and reading all that together helped me come out the other side of it. Yeah. Um, Were there any particular sort of turnaround moments in that in that time? I think when I got involved in legislation for adoptees' rights, um, I, I tried to get a, 
uh, bill passed in the Senate uh, and then the House had never made it to committee. And then I got involved in the Measure 58 in Oregon. And I used the anger and pain that I had experienced to activate the, my work. And at, the more I told my story, the more it was out there. Uh, and the more I felt like I could do something about what had happened, at least for the for the records, if nothing else, that helped me feel more empowered and like I'd somehow done some type of reparation. Yeah. Um, so it 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 was an, a key piece. So I was chatting to um, an, another a, well, an adoptee on the show about advocacy work, and it, she she was here in the UK. Uh, and she said that when she she'd been doing some work with politicians, when she if she said that it, it, the if you're in if you're in a the inner circle if you are a fellow politician, then uh -huh. it, uh, anger is permissible. Uh -huh. But anybody that comes in from the outside um, showing any displays of anger is is basically cancelled. Is basically shut out. Mm. Is that different in, in the States or was were you kind of like holding your anger back, just using it as a tool to, to push you forward or what, what did that look like for you? Um, I tried to use mine in, in a more a productive way. I was feeling it. I could feel it all the way from my toes up top of my head when I'd be talking to senators and trying to tell them my story and why it was important to open records and what had happened. Uh, but I became... My power within that anger was to be very strategic about how I told my story and who I told it to for it to be effective. Um, so I was able to take um, the anger and keep it somewhat submerged <laughs> um, so that I could effectively bring about change. Um, and and so, it, but, you know, it would get activated when I learn more about, you know, I went back to the home and I went back, you know, went back to the adoption agency and all that. And then it'd get activated and then I'd have to think, okay, I need to be effective, not mad all the time, <laughs> you know, but I think depression was the default, you know, I, or the other way around, the anger for the depression. Um, and I would just have these tremendous sad periods. And then I'd come out of them and, um, and it would be rolling. It'd kind of be this rolling sadness. Uh, that per, that stayed with me a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so wh when did you become a, a therapist? When because you twenty five years ago. Twenty five years yeah. ago. Yeah. And this this propelled me to become a therapist. You know, actually, I'd been in therapy with someone who told me that my issue about birth parents was not a real reason. There was no reason. It had nothing related to my depression and that they weren't going to talk about it um, and that I was really wrong to be doing anything with the law. And that so angered me. <laughs> that doesn't, I'm going to become a therapist. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just like, yeah, doesn't, I'm going back to school. I'm going to become a therapist because this is just not true, you know. Um, so actually the work got me to become a therapist so yeah the work the the advocacy work was the spring yeah, yeah and then i met a lot of other therapists and you know betty jean lifton and annette Barron and all the other people that were active joyce pavo and they became my mentors for getting into school and and figuring out 
how to be really good. They were, I just had great teachers about the work, you know. Yeah. So uh, Joyce, Joyce has been on the show. She's a great. Uh, oh, yeah. She's a great Super. lady. She's a great Super. lady. So, yeah, I'm, I'm putting the, team, the timelines together. So you became a therapist 25 years ago. So that's, what, 98. Um, uh -huh. 95 was on the reunion. So this is all, this must have been a really busy time of your life. Yes, yes. And I was lost for a while there, lost in where, what, what I was going to do with my life. You know, I, I just didn't think I was very lovable. I didn't think I could ever be forgiven. Um, and again, that was that life sentence. And then I had to pay it forever, forever, you know. Um, and so there was lots of periods there in that middle time before. I mean, as I got in school, I got more focused and was able to sort of be learning about what was happening to me. But um, there was a long period where I just felt like this was something I was never going to get out of, you yeah. know, that it, there was not going to be any forgiveness. And I hadn't really thought of forgiving myself. See, that well, that's what came later. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Yeah. You know. Forgiving yourself. And, yes. Because once I was able to embrace that it was my 16-year-old self that had made terrible choice. She had to make a terrible choice with no support. Nobody was talking to me. No one was, you know, giving me any kind of advice that I just really learned to love her for her courage and her grit and her trying to sort out, okay, now maybe if I do this, that'll be better than if I do this. And, you know, by myself, you know, which just, I look back now and every time I see a 16-year-old, I'm like, oh, gee, that's so young, <laughs> you know. But I've learned, once I was able to love her and have compassion for her, then the guilt uh, started going away. And, and you know, I, I think there's healthy shame, things we should feel bad about, but then there's that awful toxic shame that we don't we don't benefit from. So, so I was beginning to accept what had happened and and realize that I'd done the really in the old we've heard this phrase before but I did the best I could with the situation in front of me you know yeah but getting that intellectually and getting that in your bones completely too yeah completely different yeah. things that's right that's right yeah was there a particular moment when you got it when you got it in your bones, when the penny dropped for you on this stuff? I think once I realized that my story could be helpful to others, and like when my life story came out in Rolling Stone, and they got all these articles just poured in about how much it meant to them to read about this, all the adoptees and birth parents, but they heard from a lot of adoptees. Then I realized, wow, maybe my story has meaning somehow. Maybe there's a reason I'm in this point in time and I had this experience. And also when I saw all the, the young adoptees trying to get their birth certificates the day after the law passed, they were all there. It was just packed at the Department of Vital Statistics. So many wanted it. And I thought, okay, there can be good come from my experience. 
Um, And if I keep teaching and supporting and helping people from my story, then it's it some good can be had. Have you heard of a guy called Robert Diltz? Have you heard of him? It's a psychologist. Mm -hmm. Robert Diltz. I think it's D-I-L-T-S. Diltz. Not sure if I remember that name. Yeah, he's he's got uh he's got a model um and it's mm-hmm. a bit like um uh, like an ansos matrix no um oh, i've forgotten the name of the therapist now um maslow sorry it's a bit like the maslow's pyramid you know the hierarchy of yes the, yes um which uh at the top it's got self self-actualization if i remember from mm-hmm. my um from from my uh psychology lessons back in the day um and, and I, but the the robert diltz model he he's got um i think meaning is his top of the pyramid mm-hmm. so when when our you know when our story uh, when we realize you know that, that there's a we've been through or we've been through for a reason mm-hmm. like, yeah oh my like when what when 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 the penny dropped, uh, when it when the penny dropped for you on that, uh, do you do you work with with you work with um clients? Does that is that ever a thing for them? Um. Yes. You know, I when I first started practicing, I worked with much more um adult adoptees and birth parents. Now I'm, you know, I'm in a different place. I'm at the coast and it's more generals practice, but, but I had support groups and, you know, I had a lot when I was living and working in Portland and I set up several teaching um, um, seminars for doctors actually to train them and nurses about relinquishment and adoption and how it affects. So now it more that people filter in that just happen to mention at the end of their intake paperwork. Oh, by the way, I'm adopted, you know, but, uh, but over the years I had a lot, I was much more active in my first 10 years. I'd say a practice of a lot of people coming to me because they knew yeah. about my work. Yeah. But. And did that meaning thing give meaning to, to them, to, to your clients? Yes. Yeah. That, that they, I think in particular, when a birth mom meets another birth mom, boy, there can be so much healing there because we often were told not to talk to each other, not socialize. So when I, particularly what I mean in a birth mom, but then also when I worked with adoptees and they're talking about, they're trying to find their birth mom or whatever. And then I let them know, depending on the circumstance, disclose that I'm a birth mother that really helps them see that there's a human person behind what happened to them. Um, and so it opens up a lot of conversation that maybe they wouldn't have had with someone who wasn't in the constellation, the adoption constellation. And and presumably it's proof that it's not a life sentence, right, as well? I know. Uh, one of the things I've worked hard and my work, particularly with birth mothers, is to let go of that thing that this is something you've got to bur- be burdened with your whole life. You know, it is what it is. There was a lot of things that happened that shouldn't have happened, um, that were wrong. And certainly, I always say that within the triad, um, 
the adoptee got the worst deal, you know, for sure. They lost their family of origin. They lost their connection. They lost all so much. So we have a responsibility as the birth parent to provide that understanding and explanation and information, but it can't be something that we carry forever or else everybody's burden. We'll never get out of it. Um, but also I will say that even with that, my son and I will forever have a trauma bond between us. It's not the same as with my other children. It just is never going to be the same um, because he lost all those years. Um, and, and so it's good when I see him with his siblings because they, they really enjoy him and have a good relationship and they are able to bridge. But he and I will always have something that we can't quite cross through because we were separated in a traumatic way. And I always felt if he could do some of his own therapy, it would help him, but that hasn't happened. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I was I was going to ask a question on, on, on that, but you've, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can, can, is it, this isn't, I don't know, I'm just, I'm going to ask you anyway. I mean, can, yeah. can you, can you take, can you take a, a, a the therapist's hat off and put the 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 mum hat on? Yeah. Well, yeah. I think you know. In fact, now that you said that, I just wanted to share this with you. When I saw him just two months ago, um, we were he was visiting with one of his brother brothers, my middle son, and we had the baby, his new baby. And there was a moment when we were just alone in the room and I was holding the baby and I could feel his pain that I had never held him like that at that age. I held him right after birth, but, and it was palpable. The energy was palpable and that he was seeing me mother my grandson in a way he'd never been mothered. And he just got up, went in the other room, and it. And I realized, okay, I'm not going to be able to bridge this with him because as it is, we're really taking baby steps to come back together after a long estrangement. Uh, so I didn't talk to him about it. Um, but I also felt that the pain is still there. He still feels it. Um, and, and I... And I just don't think it's going to leave him. It, it, it's, it's too enormous of a loss. So when I can be there, when his fam siblings can be there, when we can support him, and I send, he has sons of his own now, and I send them little animals and cards and stuff, I think that helps. But there is a part of him that's remote from me, and he can't reach it, and I can't fix it. Now, see, I used to think I could fix it, but I can't fix it. Are you at peace with the unfixability? I am now. I am now. But um, I don't, it doesn't haunt me anymore. Um, I do think that I took what I couldn't repair with him and what happened into my work. And every time I can help somebody, whether they're an adoptee or not, 
I feel like I'm bringing good into the world. I'm sending out something good to help someone else. And so that is my way of sort of making peace with what happened. Um, I think when I look at his life and my life, that somehow this was the destiny, the sad destiny of what happened to, for both of us. Um, and so I don't feel there's a benefit for me to be chronically guilty or ashamed of that in relationship to him. It isn't healthy. It keeps him trapped and it keeps me trapped. And he needs to address that at some point in his own way. I don't think he will, but he has a great wife. He has adorable little boys. So he is stable and does have his own family now. So. So it kind of leads me onto the a question of about like, I'm I'm really interested in uh, insights and mm -hmm. big, big shifts in belief. Mm -hmm. but, um, did did I tell you about the letter from my birth mum? Did I tell you about that? Yes, a little bit, but tell me more. Yeah. So when I got my adoption file, which is about eight years or so ago. There was this letter in in there from my birth mum to the social worker who had worked on the placement, thanking her about uh, thanking her for for her help mm -hmm. uh, at the uh, you know on that on the day of hand, handover. So when I was five weeks old, so fe February sixty seven, and. The uh, you you the, the word that you talked earlier on was about um, control. You know, like in the uh -huh. in the mother and baby's home, the uh, Salvation Army. Um, why? What do you say? The white, the white sisters. The white. What was it called? The the Salvation Army was called. Oh the, yeah, White Shield. Salvation. White Army. Shield. Yeah, the White Shield. Yeah. yeah. Um, you you used, you know you talked about control. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, a, a massive inequality of of control. And reading this letter from my birth mother, mm -hmm. which she was begging the social worker to get my mum and dad to ask my mum and dad if they'd have that they'd give her this, if they'd accept this teddy bear for. Oh yes, uh -huh. yeah, I mean. and. Reading the the letter, reading the letter, I I saw her utter powerlessness. Mm -hmm. That's utter powerlessness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I I saw the, uh, the 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 power, the inequality of power. Uh, I felt the desperation of mm -hmm. her, mm -hmm. a predicament, and 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 I I felt her her love for me, and that this teddy bear was a, a consolation prize. Uh, sorry, the the letter, the teddy bear that I, 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 one moment in my life felt like a consolation prize was a symbol of her love. And, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. like when you're talking about um, buying animals for your son's 
Yes, yeah. You know, like that hit me. Yeah. <laughs> As you, it and I, and I I just and I, I remember just crying buckets uh, for for the forty seconds of anger and fear that I'd had in my life towards mm-hmm. my brother. And it, it it seems to me that those 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 the 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 biggest the biggest moments for for me come with that uh, emotional tumult, tumultuous I think is the word I'm, I, I don't mm-hmm. know use the word for but it, it, it's it's like a like a a, a real um, it, it's a it's a dip it, it, it's a profound trough but it leads to yes. break what do people say break down to break through yes yeah yeah something like mm-hmm. that. Um, and that's what happens if we keep on going, you know, like you were, it took you 14 years. Yeah. Yeah. To, to find him. So if, if we keep on going and we are, um, don't let our fear stop us, then that's how I kind of see us having these breakthroughs. And I'm just wondering what your take on all this is as a as a as a, a therapist and clearly very loving mum is uh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh you could talk into that i've shared my experience but is there something that you can say to the listeners um that kind of wraps that up is there anything if so, I can talk about that yeah, feeling, could, could 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 you talk? I've talked about my uh, uh, my kind of theory, if you like, my pet uh-huh. theory on insights and breaking down to break through and all yeah. this stuff, and, and and we keep going. I'm just wondering if you could put a um, a more general take on that that might benefit the listeners. Um, I think that there has to be some type of ability, and of course I recommend with good therapy, with a therapist that knows how to do trauma work particularly, to get the story out of loss, of pain, of heartache, of disappointment, of um, the profound effects of relinquishment uh, before the adoption, um, and really be able to empower the adoptee in particular to tell the story, have the story heard, have it compassionately cared about, and then help them find a way to make sense of what it means now so that they can eventually let the story go and not have it hold them hostage forever. Um, because it's like any other work any it, you know that we do um, to be able to take the things that have harmed us, hurt us, been painful, grief, losing someone special. Only this is such a big life event to lose your family of origin and lose your the, the smell of your mom, the sense of your mom, the parenting. So I think if we can move actually all parties um, in adoption from victim to survivor of it, uh, just like we do with any other trauma, and help that by unpacking it 
and then stabilizing the, the, their own life. You know, I always do body work and, and that kind of stuff to help people stabilize the trauma in their body um, and then be able to let it go that that's part of what the story is. But the story has to be heard first. They have to have a voice for it. They have to give voice to it um, and not be repressed in telling it and sharing in the heartache of it. Um, and I do think sibling reunions can be quite healing, that it, it helps the adoptee have some connection to the family of origin. Um, and, and of course, I think all of us should be able to find who our biological parents are, whatever the relationship is, to help begin to make sense of what we did and didn't get or they did and didn't get. Um, but we all know that's not easy. Reunion's not easy. It's very difficult. You know, uh, so I think giving voice to the story, helping it have meaning and putting it in the context of the rest of their life. And then at some point, letting it go so they can live forward. That's what Betty Jean Lifton said. We must all live forward. And I think she's right. She's she was absolutely right about that. Yeah. Can I take you back on something that you said a couple of minutes ago about stabilizing the trauma in the body? Yeah. Well, when I work with trauma, I have my three-prong approach. One is let's stabilize everything. And I'm talking basic functioning, sleeping, eating, exercise, meaningful prayer, whatever practice you have. Um, uh, just getting the body stable and healthier, because usually it's so activated when people have trauma, they haven't done anything about. So learning self-care and that real basic functioning that sometimes people, what do you mean self-care? I do self-care, don't I? You know, they don't even know what that means, but it's a caring of self. Then get that kind of layered down as a foundation. Then we begin the processing of the story so that it can come out of a at least physiologically stable place. Um, and then let the story come wherever little pieces or big pieces, let it flow out. And then third part is how do we live forward with what we know now. So that's how I like to work with trauma. It, it just, you need to have the body stable because all the hormones that, stress hormones that have been flooded in all our bodies when, when we've had this, you know, early injury is there, you know. Yeah, so you mean stabilizing the body, yeah. Okay. Stabilizing right. the body, which stabilizes the brain, which, you know, it just all, all does it, you know, but often people don't, they don't even know what that's like. They've lived out of a reactive life or they lived out of the trauma and the pain and they don't know how. Um, and that's why, of course, you see a lot of adoptees with alcohol and drug problems and, you know, a lot of issues because they, around that emotionality that can't be regulated because they've never taken care of themselves because they thought they weren't worth the being taken care of. You know, no one took care of me, so why should I take care of myself, you know? So I always start with that. Let's get you grounded. Let's get you grounded is basically it. Yeah. So um, fascinating discussion. I'm conscious of time. Um, is there something that I've not asked you about that you'd like to share with the adoptees listening? I think just that 
being able to have the courage to recognize that for whatever reason, this is how their life began, uh, but there's much more hope and how their life can continue and go forward. Um, and that if they look for that and they allow themselves to recognize their own goodness, their own ability to be loving to themselves and to others, there can be great healing. I'm very optimistic about all that. And so rather than keep everybody down and we're angry and we're mad and it ain't gonna work and all that negativity, I really believe there's much more hope. We're talking about it now. We never talked about it. We have therapists specializing in it now. We have podcasts, we have books, we have leaders in it. And listening to something like this, if it can even do one thing to help someone have more hope, the hope is there. Um, it's possible to overcome the pain of it all. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dolores. Thank you for having me. What a treat. Yeah. I love connecting with both of you. Okay. Thank you, listeners. And uh, we'll speak to you again very soon. Goodbye.